You're listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. To learn more about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Adam Mutasib. Adam, I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we're in 2 Samuel chapter 8. I want to invite you, like uh, Michelle just read, to turn there. And typically I'm in a pretty chipper mood, but today I'm uh, particularly brokenhearted this week. Honestly, I've been particularly brokenhearted. I uh, last week read a report about a man, uh, a famous man, Christian apologist named Ravi Zacharias, you may have heard of, who uh, just came out that he used the platform that God gave him to preach the gospel to abuse women. Um, And it was harrowing just reading the corruption in this man's life behind the scenes. Uh, Seemed to be a a herald of the gospel on the stage, but behind the scenes he was a monster. And I don't know, I read the report, and this isn't anything new. I mean, we've seen this over the past couple of years. Like, but I don't know, Harvey Weinstein, that's Hollywood, and Matt Lauer, that's Good Morning America. Like, but the church, too, I'm just kind of shocking to see this happening in the Christian world. And you may have read that report, you may have seen a Christian leader that you love fall over the past couple of years. Lose your trust. And you may be questioning your faith today. Perhaps a spiritual leader you've trusted and who has strengthened your faith in the past has you asking, can I even believe this message anymore? Well, this morning, I want us to remember that your salvation and your discipleship is not dependent on whether the preacher from whom you heard the gospel is genuine. Rather, on whether the gospel itself is genuine. And I want to encourage you this morning, it is. The gospel is dependent on only one leader, Jesus Christ. Jesus said many would come in his name and turn out to be frauds. We should not be surprised by this. Instead, we look to him and thank him. And he's unflappable. He's never changing. Same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Holy, righteous. You know, there's this uh, episode of The Simpsons which you probably didn't expect me to quote The Simpsons this morning, but I am. And in The Simpsons, Homer Simpson, the main character, is reading the Bible. And he's going through it, and he's like, man, everyone in this book is a sinner except this one guy. Well, that's the theme of our message this morning. Everyone in here and everyone out there is so jacked up. In ways, more ways than we can even know or imagine. But there is one who does have it together. 2 Samuel chapter 8, our text this morning, shows us there's only one leader who will never let you down. There's only one king who has no scandals, only a scandal of grace. And unlike other leaders, the more layers you uncover of him, the more in awe of him you become. Rather than the more disillusioned you become. So our main idea today, the main thing I want you to leave feeling is, I want you to be comforted this morning. Because Jesus, the greater David, is our conquering king. And if you're not a Christian, man, I'm so glad you're here this morning because I don't want you to look at all the leaders in the world. I don't want you to look at all the pastors or the Christian people or the churches that have let you down. I want you to look at Jesus. And this text gives us a glimpse of him. 
he's who we preach. He's who we present to you. And he's all you need. And this morning you can see for yourself, what is this king like and is he who I want to follow? And if you are already a Christian, I want to comfort you that even though we see Christian leaders letting us down constantly, falling like flies, we can be comfort, comforted simply by looking at our King Jesus. Like even if I were to fall, God forbid, you know, the older I get, like I find myself less wanting to be flashy and just make it to the end without being an idiot. Pray for me that I would just reach the finish line, guys. <laughs> That's my new goal. <laughs> but even if, God forbid, I were to fall, to let you down, even if Pastor Adam were to, to fall and let you down, you still have everything you need. You still have Jesus. He's who we preach. This church is not built on me. It's built on Him. And so as we turn to 2 Samuel 8, we, we should remember last week in 2 Samuel 7, we saw a massive chapter that spans the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's, it's a covenant promise God makes to David. And, you know, if you remember from 2 Samuel 7, David preached it last week, David Whistle, about David. That was planned. Uh, it wasn't, but it, God works out that way. And David's like, God, I'm going to build you a house. I got you. And God's like, <laughs> okay, David, I don't really need a house, but let me build you a house. Meaning, I'm going to build you a dynasty that endures through all generations. He's talking about Jesus is going to come through the line of David. And this is such grace, this promise in 2 Samuel 7, when we consider how corrupt David is going to turn out to be, how evil he turns out to be. In a few chapters, we're going to see David is at the top of the list of scandals of, of leaders. David wouldn't just be canceled today, he would be given capital punishment. God is so gracious to this guy. And 2 Samuel 8 is the fulfillment, or the beginning of the fulfillment of the promise in 2 Samuel 7 that God gives to David. I'm going to build a dynasty through you. And so David, in chapter 8, begins to defeat all of Israel's enemies. We see him crush the Moabites, the Philistines, the Edomites. Something just fell. I don't know what the heck that was. Uh, if you're watching online, I don't know if you saw that. Like, flowers are descending from here. God loves my preaching this morning. David defeats all the enemies of God. And uh, you probably, um, just to be honest, let's, let's be real with one another. Sometimes when we read the Bible, we get to chapters like this, and I'm like, what the heck does this have to do with my life? Like, can we move on to the next section? Like, why do I care about these battles in the Middle East 2,500 years ago about trade routes or who wore the territorial pants in this area? Like, I don't give a heck. I almost said a different word. Uh, but this section matters to our lives, friends. It matters. Second Samuel 8 matters to you. First, because it shows us that God really does fulfill His promises like the one He did in 2 Samuel 7, so we can trust His other promises. But the, the, the main reason why 2 Samuel 8 matters, and what, the reason I want you to study this with me today, is because it gives us a glimpse of Jesus. In John chapter 5 in the New Testament, Jesus is talking to these Pharisees, Pharisees who love the Old Testament, who love texts like 2 Samuel uh, chapter 8. And Jesus says to them, you search the, search the scriptures because you think in them you can find eternal life, but you do not know that the scriptures bear witness about me. Basically what he's saying is, the Old Testament, all of it is about me. 
So every story in the Bible, including this text, this chapter, points us to Jesus. Every Old Testament story is like, where's Waldo? The, pa the page is dedicated to finding him. He's, he's pointed to somewhere in here. So if Jesus were here at this pulpit teaching you this morning, what would he teach from 2 Samuel 8? I, I think if he were here, he would say, David's kingship and his kingdom give you a glimpse of my kingship and my kingdom that you will one day see fulfilled. And I don't know about you, but I'm ready for a new king. I'm ready for a new leader, right? Our last president joked about molesting women. That's not locker room talk. That's evil. And our current president is legislating the use of tax dollars to kill babies in the womb, even to the point where they can feel pain. And I, I'm so ready for a righteous king. I'm ready for Jesus to bring his kingdom to this world. So now that I've offended everyone on both sides of the political aisle, let me get to my points. Jesus is the true conquering king who will destroy his rivals, number one, verses one through six, gather his riches, verses seven through 12, and establish his rule, verses 13 to 18. And I want you to be comforted today by this conquering king. Let's start with number one. Jesus, the conquering king, in the model of David, destroys his rivals. So the chapter begins telling us David defeats the Philistines. The Philistines are the nation that have been tormenting Israel for generations. The Philistines, if you're new to the Bible, the Philistines are like Elmer Fudd to Israel's Bugs Bunny. Like these two going at it nonstop. But here the rivalry ends. David's victory is so absolute that we're not going to read about the Philistines, this main foe. We won't hear about them until, for another 13 chapters. So David, in his kingship, decimates the Philistines. And then David turns to another enemy, the Moabites, and he deals with them harshly. He lines them up and wipes out two-thirds of their population. And the Moabites, it says, end of verse 2, became servants to David and brought tribute. They submitted to his rule. Now this text is a fulfillment of the prophecy way back in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, that a star shall come from Jacob that will crush the Moabites. Basically, the Moabites had oppressed God's people Israel. We read about this in the Old Testament. And their oppression of Israel had stirred up God's justice and stirred up God's anger and His wrath so much that God promised, I will crush these people. And God, through David, wipes out most of their population and they submit to David's rule and they, this is, would have been a truly horrific and brutal scene. You would have covered your kids' eyes. Now, this beginning section is giving us a glimpse through David's kingdom of Jesus' kingdom. Jesus is going to return and rule he, like in the pattern of David. Now, we tend to emasculate the return of Jesus Christ. And this is showing us and reminding us, especially if we look further ahead in the book of Revelation, that Jesus, when he returns from the cloud, in the clouds, he will not come wearing sandals and holding a free hug sign. The book of Revelation tells us that Jesus, when he returns, will come back like Liam Neeson in the movie Taken. A dad coming to rescue his little girl. He will come with fire in his eyes, with a tongue out of his mouth, wearing, uh, riding a white horse as a warrior king. 
coming to wipe out all his enemies, like David does with the Philistines and Moabites. Jesus is not coming again as a suffering servant. He will defeat all his rivals and he will establish his reign on the earth. And like the nations do now, and like they have from the beginning, the nations will try and resist Christ's reign. Futilely. But they will be destroyed. And there has never been conquest without conflict. Old Testament scholar Dale Ralph Davis says, David's kingdom is not a perfect, but a preliminary and principal form of Christ's kingdom. Surely the cross has taught us that no one defeats the dominion of darkness in a bloodless coup. Nor will history simply ooze into the kingdom of God. The kingdom will come at the last because Christ, David's seed, imposes it over all objection and opposition and conquers all his and our enemies. Jesus' rule will not be established by popular demand. There will be no votes. Jesus is going to take what has always belonged to him and with force wipe out all his enemies. Which, in a sense, is a good news because all that oppresses us is rooted in our enemies. Satan, sin, evil. Jesus will wipe all of it out. But this is also bad news because we have contributed. We are a part of this evil. Who here can say, I have not contributed to the decay of this world in some way? Who here can say, I have not contributed to the decay of this world today? This chapter is giving image to a really powerful text in Psalm chapter 2, which was also, uh, which was written by David. And David tells us in Psalm 2 that God's conquering king will return to the earth and make the nations his inheritance, the ends of the earth his possession. And Psalm 2 gives us two options, surrender to this king now or surrender to him later. The text says that those who do not surrender now, who wait who resist, will stir up the king's wrath and be shattered like a clay pot being thrown onto the ground. But God graciously provides another option to surrender him now and be given mercy. Psalm 2 says, Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish. This is not a kiss of affection, like, oh, on the cheek, oh, I love you, buddy. No, this is a kiss of surrender. A kiss you would give a king on the foot or on the hand. And Psalm 2 ends for a, with a promise for those who surrender this king now. This is a promise for only those of you who have committed your life to following Jesus and submitting to this king. It ends saying, David says, Blessed are those who take refuge in him, in the conquering king. Imagine a man on a battlefield facing constant bullets and grenades and artillery. As much as that man would dive into a bunker for safety, that is how we dive into Christ for safety from his wrath. No matter who accuses us, no matter what shoots at us or attacks us or threatens us, the bunker protects us. That's our invitation to you this morning. If you're not a Christian, dive into the refuge of Jesus Christ. He is the one way we avoid the wrath of the king. Or wait and be smashed amongst his enemies. One day, you and I will be lined up like the Moabites were here in this text. 
and we will fall down on the ground before his glory, ready for judgment. And it won't be just two-thirds that deserve to be struck down. It will be three-thirds. Each of us having stirred up the Lord's wrath in our own way. And with every knee bowed and every tongue confessing Jesus is king, he will stand ready to shatter us like a pot on the ground. And there will be only one question asked of us as we are lined up. Have you taken refuge in him? Have you taken refuge in Christ? And that question will determine your eternity. And so you, friend, have a decision to make today. He is coming to defeat his rivals. Are you one of them? Are, are you in the refuge? Jesus will one day, number one, destroy his rivals, just like David does here. Take refuge in the Savior. Number two, Jesus, uh, like David, will gather his riches. Notice in verses 7 through 12 that David becomes Elon Musk rich. According to 1 Chronicles 22.14, the cumulative amount of these acquisitions from these battles were staggering. It, he approximately acquired 7.1 million pounds of gold and 75 million pounds of silver. So the gold alone in today's prices would be worth about $195 billion. What could you even do with $195 billion? I don't know. A lot of stuff. One thing you can do is start an empire. That's what David did. This will establish Israel as a global superpower and an economic force. And these riches will be inherited by David's son Solomon and used to build a lavish palace and the temple of God and continue on for a few generations in Israel. And this picture is a forecast of Jesus' kingdom where Jesus will also gather his riches one day. Haggai 2 prophesies of the coming conquering king that God will shake the nations and fill his house with all the treasures of the nations. You can just imagine God shaking the globe and all of his valuables coming out. The thing is, though, that the treasures of the nations for God are not gold or silver or Bitcoin, even though it's untraceable. <laughs> the treasures of God is us. It's his people. See, from the beginning, God's purpose has always been to gather a people for himself. A people to whom he reveals his glory to, and a people in whom he reveals his glory through. Way back in the Garden of Eden, God gathered our parents, Adam and Eve, together so that they could enjoy the perfect fellowship that had already existed between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But our parents rebelled, just like we would have. And their sin sent all of creation into a spiral. The creation that we have inherited. And so way back in Genesis, in Genesis 3.15, God promised that a Savior would come that would regather His people. And these people would have fellowship like Adam and Eve once did. And since then, God has been bringing a people together. God even called Abraham out of Ur and said, He promised Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And from the line of Abraham, God then gathered Israel from Abraham's descendants. And he protected Israel from slavery and from exile and wilderness and enemies. And he promised from Israel that a Messiah would come to bring the nations together. And we've seen in First and Second Samuel, our series, The King is Coming, that we've gotten a glimpse of this conquering king, this Messiah who would gather all his people together. 
And soon in the Gospels, after the, first, the events of First and Second Samuel, we meet this King Jesus, who has come to redeem a people, and the people he calls the Church. And the church is the fulfillment of God's ancient promise to Abraham that he would gather the nations before him. And the book of Acts is the story of Jesus sending his disciples to the ends of the earth to gather his elect, his treasure, through church planting. And in Revelation, all of this culminates in this wonderful picture where John describes God's treasure as a bride, as a new heavens and a new earth, as a holy city. And these are all referring to the same entity, looked at in different ways and given different titles. It's the church, the gathered community of the redeemed people of God. From the beginning, God has had this end in view. All of history is curving, working towards this end. You may know the individual stories of the Bible, but do you know the story of the Bible? The Bible is not like Aesop's fables, like a collection of moral lessons to get you through life. The Bible is, in all of history, is one grand narrative leading to the point described in Revelation 21 and 22 where God's treasure, a redeemed people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are gathered before Him, restored once again in harmony with Him like Adam and Eve were in the garden. Sit in that this morning. That's what the local church is, friend. Like we're not just at a service. You're not here to listen to me talk for an hour and 40 minutes, and we'll see how it goes, and sing a few songs. I'm not here to like pump you up for Monday. Us, together, here, right now, are a small glimpse of God's precious treasure. His people. We are a part of the promised people that God is gathering together. And only He could have gathered this group of misfits together, right? He has set us apart for His glory. Like you are taking part in what God has been doing from the beginning of history and getting a foretaste of where all history is headed. And so friends, when times get really hard, like they have been in this last year. Remember the grand narrative of the Bible in all of history. God has spent all of human civilization extending himself and expending himself in pursuit of his church, the church that you are a part of if you're in Christ. And Jesus, like David does here, will one day gather all his riches, gather a people for his own possession, and this is why Jesus came to the earth. It's why he died. It's why he rose. And it's why he ascended. And it's why he's returning. And this is the vision you're invited to participate in. And because of this ultimate vision, this is why our church doesn't just gather together. It's why we also scatter out into the ends of the earth. So we go throughout Baltimore teaching and preaching the gospel. So God will have an even larger treasure to gather. It's why we send our very best to the ends of the earth to plant more churches amongst unreached people groups so that when God shakes the nations, out of it comes a multitude of Iranians and Lithuanians and Japanese and Azerbaijanis and Cherokees and Hutu and Thai and even people from Baltimore. All gathered around his throne, falling before his glory and saying, only you could have got us together like this. 
And friends, we go with confidence to share that gospel. You have been sent to share that gospel in whatever avenue or calling you've been given. And we go with confidence because Christ will do this. He will gather his elect. We just get to play a role in collecting them. And not one person who has taken refuge in Christ will have been forgotten. All of us will be there. Around his throne, having fallen down, having kissed his feet, enjoying his kingdom, having become his treasure. Let this unfolding story encourage you today. See your life in light of this bigger picture. You're not here to make a few dollars and retire and get a beach house. Your life has much more meaning than that. And as we gather for worship every week, remember that you and I are a microcosm of something greater, something diverse and beautiful, something global and glorious, something in the present that will extend into the future and beyond into eternity. God's purpose has always been to have a people for himself, real people who gather around the word, who break bread together, who sing together and laugh together and weep together and pray together and dream together and do ministry together. God is currently in our midst, revealing his glory to us, displaying his glory through us. Let's not lose our wonder of that reality. Jesus will come like David to destroy his rivals. He will then gather his riches like David does. And then finally, we get a glimpse of what this kingdom is like. Jesus will then establish his rule and his reign. And this last point has really comforted me this week. And I pray it does for you as well. So David has, like I said, destroyed his enemies, gathered his riches. Now he establishes his rule. Verse 14 says that David even establishes garrisons or outposts all throughout the conquered land. And the reason he does this is to ensure that he maintains control over the Edomites and these other enemies. And then we get verse 15, and if you were going to memorize any verse in chapter 8, it, it should be verse 15. This kind of summarizes... Uh, what's happening. We get a glimpse of what David's kingdom is like. It tells us David reigned over all Israel and David administered justice and equity to all people. That sounds good, doesn't it? I could use some justice and equity for all people. David brings a kingdom of justice and equity. Now, uh, what is justice and equity? Well, justice here in the Hebrew is the word mishpat. Mishpat is often known as rectifying justice. Mishpat is fixing all that's wrong with society. Mishpat is the word we'd use uh, if we respectfully, respectfully put pressure on the local police department to respond to calls and crimes as quickly in the poorer parts of town as they do in the richer parts of town. Mishpat would be uh, somebody forming an organization that prosecutes and seeks justice against loan companies that prey on the elderly and the poor. Mishpat is rectifying a, a retributive justice. And then equity here is the word, Hebrew word sedek. Sedek is known as primary justice. It's literally the word righteousness. Sedek is the kind of justice that if embodied by everyone, there will be no need for mishpat. There would be no need for retributive or uh, justice. It'd be unnecessary. Sedek, or uh, equity here, is the word to describe taking the time personally to meet the needs of the vulnerable. 
the handicapped and the elderly and the orphan in our neighborhoods. Or it could potentially mean uh, starting a nonprofit that serves those who are in need. And so these two words, mishpat and sedek, are often tied together in the Bible. In fact, they're used together over three dozen times in the scriptures. The English expression that best describes their meaning together is the term social justice. In the Bible, living a life of social justice, a life of mispat and sedek, means not only righting the wrongs that we see in society, but personally sacrificing to be generous and concerned towards the poor and the vulnerable and the orphan and the widow. And friends, the reason our life on this earth is so hard is because of a lack of mishpat and sedek, a lack of justice and equity that is abounding in our lives. Sin has ruined justice and equity. I was reading last week an article about a black couple in Austin who put about $400,000 into a home that they renovated. And they got the home appraised and they were shocked at how low the value of the appraisal was. They, considered, they figured something was a little fishy. And so they had their white friend pretend to own the home and got a second appraisal just a few weeks later. And their white friend put pictures of their white family all around the house. And a black couple essentially hid. And the second appraisal came back a whopping $493,000 more in value for the white couple than the black couple. That's a 50% increase in value. That is a lack of justice and equity. And we see realities like that of that couple in Austin here in Baltimore. I've talked to many of you in our congregation who have faced oppression and, and injustice like this. I remember when my mom was healthy. She currently has Alzheimer's. But a few years ago, I remember her sharing with me how she was abused as a child. And uh, I was finally at an age where I could process and understand what happened to her. And, uh, she told me that she was physically, sexually, and emotionally abused by multiple men at the age of 13. And I remember just hearing her describe what all these men did to her, this little girl, my mom. She's getting angrier and angrier. Because it more and more became prevalent to me that these wicked men would never see a courtroom. They got away with it. They ruined this little girl's life. She's still, when I talked to her, she was still dealing with the trauma she was facing. And just getting so angry that we live in a world where somebody could do that to a child and get away with it. The only thing that gives me comfort is that Jesus one day will come back from the clouds as a warrior king with fire in his eyes and a, and a sword coming out of his mouth on a white horse to bring the justice and equity that we don't see today. Last summer we saw the streets of our nation, every major city filled with citizens crying out, justice and equity for all. When are we getting justice and equity for all? And that cry was really a cry for Jesus. The conquering king who is coming. And he will bring what we cry for. You know, Christians throughout history have always known how screwed up this world is. 
And it seems for many of us, we're just realizing this year how messed up it is. Uh, you think that it's been that way for the other Christians around the world? Like, you think our brothers and sisters in Iran facing persecution daily are like, man, this year, justice and equity really screwed up this year. You think our brothers and sisters in North Korea who have to hide, and in China who have Bible studies underground for fear of being found out, are like, man, this year has been really tough for justice. No, every day they long for Jesus to return and bring what they yearn for. Christians throughout history have been comforted by the book of Revelation where it describes the king who comes and brings what we long for. But we have so twisted the Bible and made it a moral guidebook for our already comfortable lives. And we've made the book of Revelation a Christian horoscope that helps us interpret our newspapers instead of a comfort of the king who comes and establishes his reign. This world is not one of justice and equity. This world, I mean, if you, you need to hear this, this world cannot be the home you want it to be. It will never be that. So stop trying to make it that. And the more and more you try and make this world home, the more and more depressed you will become. I was listening to one of my spiritual heroes, a Presbyterian pastor named Tim Keller. Last week, Tim Keller was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer a few months ago. And if you're not familiar, pancreatic cancer is essentially a death sentence. I had a friend who was, another friend who was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and they died within eight months of diagnosis, which is not uncommon. So Tim Keller is acutely aware of the reality. He's probably going to die very soon. And it was fascinating to hear the 70-year-old man, who's a hero of mine, just talk about life, knowing he's about to die. And he said something so interesting to me. He said, I spent most of my ministry unhappy. I spent most of my life unhappy. Uh, that's disconcerting. One of my heroes is saying that. He said, because I tried to make this world heaven. And it's just not. And I was always focused on the next ministry objective. But I was never able to just enjoy day by day. And my wife, Kathy, same thing. She was always thinking about the next vacation. The next time we get two weeks away at the beach house. Or uh, on a cruise. Where Tim would be focused on just the family and not on work. And the kids would be gathered and we'd be able to enjoy and we were always looking to the next thing, and we were never able to just enjoy. And it wasn't until I was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, knowing I was about to die, that the resurrection didn't it transform from a theological truth to an actual comfort. Because I realized, I'm going to be home soon. And suddenly, when I stopped trying to make this world heaven, he said, food started tasting better. Drinks started tasting better. I just, like, walks were better. Each day was like, man, what grace today. You see, the reality that this world isn't home gives you a change of expectation and an appreciation of what is present today. You know, my, uh, my son loves building Legos, our little sets together. He's like three years old. And by the way, I found this out this week. I found out that the police are called to Chuck E. Cheese more than they are to nightclubs. So come to your own conclusion on that one. Kids can be crazy. And so, you know, my, <laughs> my kid, 
when he's in an environment with like 20 other kids, like kids care, or like, you know, RCC kids, I often find him trying to build Lego sets. What inevitably happens? Chaos. There's 20 other kids who are preventing him from doing what he wants to do. They're like, oh, I want to play with this part of the toy. Uh, they're breaking apart the various sculpture that he's, this beautiful masterpiece he's trying to make. And what happens every time? He's like, no! Stop it! He's like boxing him out, getting ready for high school basketball. He's looking at me like, daddy, no! I'm playing with this! Uh, he is so frustrated. And to be honest, I can't do anything about 20 kids. Like me versus 20 kids, I'm probably going to lose that battle. And I have to tell my son, like, son, I know you want to build this right now, but you need to change your expectations. This is not the environment where you're going to be able to do this. But soon, I'll be able to take you home. And you have more Legos than you can even think of right now. And you have all the time in the world to build whatever you like to build. He's still young, but maybe one day he'll be able to understand what he can expect in a place of chaos. And I think the reason so many of us are so sad, so brokenhearted, so distraught today is because we're trying to build Legos in kids' care. And this and that and that is coming and oppressing and ripping everything we're trying to build. All of our expectations of comfort. And friend, we just need to be reminded that this world is not heaven. Equity and justice, the perfect life, it cannot be consummated here. And 2 Samuel 8 is an invitation to us to wait for the conquering king. The greater David, Jesus, who in his rule will establish the home we long for. And in the meantime, we're not called to just sit and complain. As citizens of Christ's coming kingdom, we are called to bring forth little glimpses of his rule where we are. We're called to be kingdom citizens that fight for social justice in the spheres of influence we've been given. So I know you may not be a covenant king. If you are, let's talk later. I'd love to meet you. You may not even be a small-time politician. But that doesn't mean that you don't have a role to play in bringing forth God's kingdom in the office God has placed you. You can bring the glimpse of the kingdom in your church, in your gospel community, in the way you greet people, in the way you listen to them, in the way you meet their needs. You can bring a glimpse of the kingdom as a mother or a father as you parent your child and forgive them and discipline them. You can bring a glimpse of the kingdom in your workplace as an employer or as an employee and the method in which you work and your worth ethic and the way you uh, interact with your coworkers and your boss. You can bring the kingdom to your neighborhood and the way you have grace with people as they mess up your stuff. You can be gracious with your roommate and the way you do dishes or interact and handle house drama together. If you practice what is just and right towards people, the people in your life, in your various capacities and roles, then you bring forth an image of the kingdom of God right here on the earth, and it is enjoyed by all around you. I heard a guy say this week that uh, his wife, Barbara, is a big gardener, and she's a Kansas girl through and through, but she lives in Mississippi. 
And so she took some vegetables and seeds from Kansas and planted them in her garden in Mississippi. And whenever she's out in her garden, she says, I got a little bit of Kansas right here in my house. Well, friend, you got a little bit of the kingdom wherever you are. You can plant seeds of justice and equity and righteousness wherever God's placed you so other people can enjoy its fruits. When you invite the outcast to your dinner table, you are shining the light of the kingdom. When you speak up for the voiceless, you are bringing forth a glimpse of the kingdom. When you adopt the fatherless, you reveal the kingdom. You see, when Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, this is what he's talking about. Bringing heaven to earth as best we can. Though enemies and foes will rip it apart, maybe we can get two Lego pieces together and enjoy that. May this comfort you today. The message today is your problems aren't going to be fixed by Jesus. The message is change your expectations, be comforted, and wait until he finally does come. Fixes them. I'll close with this illustration from N.T. Wright. He says, it's almost as if the rulers of this world are lame duck presidents. The true God has already declared the results. It's Jesus versus all other world rulers, and Jesus has emerged victorious. But those in power still think they're running the world. They are contesting the results of this already determined appointment. And their supporters are doing the best they can to say it's all a fake, that the resurrection never happened, that the world is going on like it always has. Sure, they're happy for you to have Jesus as some self-help religious guru, if you'd like, as long as he doesn't interrupt or disturb the actual rulers. But in fact, Jesus is already reigning. And we, his subjects, are his transition team. Getting things ready for Jesus' final open rule. On the day where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, even that of Caesar's. And so friends, we look to heaven and wait on that day. Where the conquering king comes, he defeats his rivals. He gathers his riches and he establishes a rule of equity and justice in which we can build whatever we want for his glory as a people gathered together. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I confess, and as I'm sure many other in our church confess, an over-realized eschatology. We think heaven is now. It's not. Help us to remember, Lord, that this world is chaos, a kingdom without justice and equity. Help us to handle well when the water heater breaks or the car uh, has an accident or when our friend abandons us. Sure, we can mourn, but we also look to the heavens and wait to the day when you establish your rule and make all wrong things right. In the meantime, Lord, empower us to go into the restaurants that we work, or the schools that we attend, or the workplaces that we work at, or the homes that we live in, or the neighborhoods we live in, to bring plots of the kingdom of God wherever we've been planted. 
Help us to shine forth the beauty of your rule to those around us. And I pray as we display the beauty of the gospel, we then are bold enough to declare the truth of the gospel and bring more people into your possession as your treasure, the people you will one day gather for your glory. And Lord, we can't wait for that day. Even now, it's just a glimpse. Even, even now, it's just a taste of when we're all before you and all things are right. We can rest. Give us endurance for that day. Keep us faithful into that day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. To find another message or get more information about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Thank you for listening to the Redemption City Church Podcast.